Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a delegation of six Australian politicians from across the political spectrum delivering a message from 63 members of the Australian Parliament that the vast majority of the Australian population feels strongly that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should not be extradited to the United States to face charges under the Espionage Act, but should instead be set free in Australia. Joining us is Dr Monique Ryan, the former Director of Neurology at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, who currently serves as an independent member of Parliament in Australia, representing the Federal District of Kooyong in Melbourne. She's a part of a team of six Australian members of Parliament who are visiting Washington, D.C. this week to meet with members of Congress, the White House and the State Department to discuss the U.S. dropping charges against Julian Assange. Then, as kleptocracies and autocracies increasingly encroach on democracies and the rule of law, we'll look into how to stop doing business with dictators and undo the trade trap we built, which has weakened the West and empowered its enemies. Joining us is Matthias Dofner, the chairman and CEO of Axel Springer SE, owner of U.S. media brands Politico, Insider and Morning Brew, and the largest digital publisher in Europe, active in over 40 different countries. He's the author of the new book just out, The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators, and we'll discuss his op-ed at the Wall Street Journal, What the West Loses by Trading with Dictatorships. Then finally, we'll get an update on the increasingly tense situation between Armenia and Azerbaijan as the Aliyev dictatorship tightens their squeeze on the Armenian enclave in Nagorno-Karabakh in what appears to be ethnic cleansing, while Russian peacekeepers ignore the plight of 120,000 starving Armenians trapped inside. Joining us is Huri Berberian, who is a professor of history and the Magruni Family Presidential Chair in Armenian Studies and Director of the Armenian Studies Program at the University of California, Irvine. She's the author of Armenians and the Iranian Constitution Revolution of 1905 to 1911, The Love of Freedom Has No Fatherland, and Roving Revolutionaries, Armenians and the Connected Revolutions in the Russian, Iranian, and Ottoman Worlds. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Dr. Monique Ryan, who is a former director of neurology at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, who currently serves as an independent member of parliament in Australia, representing the federal district of Kooyong in Melbourne. She's a part of a team of six Australian members of parliament who are visiting Washington, D.C. this week to meet with members of Congress, the White House and the State Department to discuss the U.S. dropping charges against Julian Assange under the Espionage Act. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Monique Ryan. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Monique. And how are you doing in terms of lobbying U.S. lawmakers, uh, the White House, State Department? I imagine the key person probably is Merrick Garland at the uh, Department of Justice. Yes, thanks. So we've had a busy day so far. This is day one of two. And we've met with representatives thus far from the Department of uh, of state, where many were representatives of the Justice Department later this afternoon. We've also met with uh, Rand Paul and uh, Thomas Massey uh, and with uh, uh, Julian Assange's uh, English and Australian lawyers and with the Australian members of the Australian um, Embassy as well. So it's been a busy day so far, but we've got a number of meetings still to go both today and tomorrow. And we haven't as yet managed to secure a, a meeting with Merrick Garland, but we are hoping that that will be possible. What, what we're, the message that we're telling everyone is that the six members of this parliamentary delegation 
from across the political spectrum in Australia. And, you know, we are people who would not agree on the time of day usually, but we are united in our belief in the importance of freeing Julian Assange at this time. Uh, and essentially, our delegation reflects the beliefs of our constituents. So more than nine out of 10 Australians now feel quite strongly that it's time that Mr Assange is released, that enough is enough and that he has been subjected to uh, detention for, for too long a time, really, and that uh, it's, it's becoming egregious and that it really is time to see the charges against him. And you and the other five members of uh, the Australian Parliament, Federal Parliament in Canberra, you're also carrying a letter of support for Julian Assange release from 63 members of the Australian House of Representatives in the Senate. That's right. And it, it's interesting, three or four years ago, I think if you asked most Australians about Julian Assange, you know, they had their doubts. You know, so much mud had been thrown at him over the years from so many different directions that people were really unsure about him and and I'm not convinced that it was appropriate that he be released. But over time, over the last few years in particular, as many of the accusations against him have been very uh, effectively discounted or disproved, there's been a growing consensus in this amongst Australian people and Australian politicians that that he is guilty really only of acts of journalism and that the, the charges against him are politically based. So the letter that we're signed, we, we carry was signed, as you said, by 53 members of the Australian Parliament. That is underrepresentative in that members, the ministers and shadow ministers will not sign that sort of letter generally. So it underrepresents the degree of support for Mr Assange in the Australian Parliament. And it really also reflects the fact we've got polling from across the country that shows nine out of 10 Australians feel that he should be released. There's a, a petition that was uh, mounted by Amnesty, which has 750,000 plus signatures on it um, from uh, most, most from Australia, but some from internationally also uh, to that end. And so there is a, a really a growing body of increasingly strong opinion that it's time that the extradition proceedings against him and the charges against him by the American government were dropped. So the US ambassador to Australia in in Canberra, Carolyn Kennedy, she's flagged a possible deal, right, back in August. So where does that mm. stand? So she, Carolyn Kennedy, as you said, has flagged a potential softening of the line and, and, and possibly a plea deal for Mr Assange. Uh, the Secretary of State has been less conciliatory and when he has spoken about this recently, which we found very disappointing. Um, we can't speak for Mr Assange and his lawyers and the discussions that they're having with the government, but really we're focused on getting him home. He has two small children and a wife and we would like to see him home in Australia by Christmas. We're not concerned as to exactly how that is affected, but we do feel that the charges should be settled in some way and that that should happen as a matter of urgency. He has significant uh, issues with his physical and mental health and we believe that he is at risk and that his continued detention will continue to result in worsening of his health. So the Australian Prime Minister is visiting uh, Washington DC next month, right? He's got a, That's a state visit, yes. I believe. And I take it that would be a good opportunity for Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to secure Assange's release. Well, the Prime Minister has said on the record before and since his election to the Prime Ministership that he thinks that enough is enough and that this matter should be brought to a close. So he and the leader of our opposition as well, Peter Dutton, has also supported that position. So we have bipartisan support for it in Australian Parliament. And we understand that the Prime Minister has been doing his best to advocate on Mr Assange's behalf. What we need is for the American government to listen and to act on that. It is a potential significant point of difference between the American and Australian governments. There's not many of those, really. We tend to work very closely together. It's a strong alliance, and it would be a great shame if Mr Assange's treatment were to drive a wedge between the two countries. But... It, it does really appear that this is something on which the Australian people are increasingly united and we would expect, or hope and expect, that our Prime Minister will make strong representations on Mr Assange's behalf when he comes to Washington in October. 
So is that the crux of your argument, in effect, to the U.S. officials, that this is really something that the Australian public feels strongly about, and that this is not a good idea to alienate the Australian public, given how close the ties to the United States and uh, Australia have been over the decades, and more recently augmented by the AUKUS partnership? Well, we're, the po- we're politicians, and, and so we, we do care about public interest, but we also care about public opinion. And so we are, that is a side of the situation that we're speaking to today. We also feel extremely strongly that this is an important question of law. Uh, the prosecution of Mr Assange by the US government represents the very first time that the Espionage Act has been used against a foreign citizen for acts in foreign territories. Uh, by the US. And so it is a really, it represents a very dangerous precedent which could have repercussions for all journalists, both in Australia and overseas. If we look at it through a different lens, if, if the Chinese government demanded that an Australian citizen be extradited to China from another country because that Australian journalist had published truthful information in the public interest, but in the way that was anathema to the Chinese government, I think we would push back against that. And, and that's essentially what we're doing here. Uh, we have, Australians have the greatest of respect for the American government. We have a very strong relationship. We res- respect the First Amendment rights of freedom of the speech and freedom of the press. And we expect a reciprocal degree of respect from the American government and that we expect that Australian journalists will be treated with respect and their right to publish truthful information in the public interest be respected. Well, as it happens, Dr Ryan, (laughs) I grew up in the same town as uh, Julian Assange in Lismore on the north coast of New South Wales, and my brother Chris Masters, who for decades did the investigative news program on the ABC television network, Four Corners, Julian Assange wrote an op-ed a while back citing my brother's work in bringing down a corrupt government in Queensland as what inspired him to become a journalist in the first place. Freedom of the press is such an important thing. And I think that the prosecution of Mr Assange by the American government would, would, would with good reason, strike fear into every journalist around the world. It could impact all... Americans and Australians' ability to to receive truthful and transparent information via the press if journalists are too scared to publish it. And one thing that I think we've all realised in the last few years is the importance of a, of a true transparent media and, and freedom of the press is really important to that. And for, for that reason, I think that the, the charges against Mr Assange are deeply problematic from a legal point of view. Uh, as, as a newly minted politician, I think they're really problematic from a political point of view as well. And, and that's why I guess I feel so strongly and other members of this delegation feel so strongly about doing all that we can do to secure Mr Assange's release. But the actual charges under the Espionage Act are for what was leaked by WikiLeaks about the Afghan and the Iraq wars and diplomatic cables in 2010 and 2011 and they were leaked by Chelsea Manning, who yes. subsequently was jailed. But then uh, President Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning. Commuted the sentence, yes. yes. So her sentence was commuted, and she walks free now, and she has done so since 2017. And so it really does seem paradoxical and counterintuitive that Julian Assange, who's never actually been convicted of anything, uh, is still in detention 11 years after this whole process began. He, he published the information that Chelsea Manning was convicted of stealing. The same thing that the New York Times has done, that the Washington Post, Des Spiegel, El Pais, The Guardian, Le Monde, have all done the same thing. They've published the information that Chelsea Manning stole and released to them. And legal action has not been taken against any of those media outlets and it seems inappropriate and unfair that it's taken against Mr Assange. Regardless, if you look at the length of the sentence that Chelsea Manning undertook, 
<laughs> it's done and dusted some years ago, and here's Julian Assange still in, in solitary confinement in a high-security English prison. That, that, that there's no justice in this situation, and, and I guess that's why we, uh, the Australian people feel increasingly strongly about it. So do you think that the real motive behind the US intelligence community's obvious dislike for, for Julian Assange has more to do with the WikiLeaks data dump in 2016 that obviously hurt Hillary Clinton's chances. As it happened, the leak happened uh, just at the time, just before the 2016 election, when Trump was in trouble because of the Access Hollywood tapes were released showing his despicable attitude towards women, and it clearly damaged him. But Immediately thereafter, in an attempt to take that story off the headlines, WikiLeaks dropped this uh, data dump of Hillary Clinton's emails and documents from the DNC. And then later on, the largest CIA leak in history in 2017 also was made public by uh, WikiLeaks. So I take it that even though they're charging him under the Espionage Act for essentially being a journalist. And as you mentioned, all of these prestigious publications around the world carry the journalism, so why aren't they on trial? But on the other hand, is the real motive more to do with these other matters, to do with the Hillary Clinton data dump and the CIA hacking tools leak from 2017? Well, you put it very well. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have gone there myself. But I think what the points that you've made really do speak to the fact that this is political persecution by prosecution. You know, this is a political... These charges are political. They're not based on any uh, sound legal or uh, justicial basis. And, and as such, we would hope that political action can lead to them being dropped. These cha- The charges were preferred by the Trump administration. They've been uh, inherited by the Biden administration, we would hope that President Biden will put them to bed and that they will, uh, that he will drop this extradition proceedings, which uh, are just becoming um, punitive, really. There's, there's no good legal basis for them. But have you sensed in any way from the Democrats that you're meeting with that they're still kind of angry at what Assange did uh, in 2016 in clearly helping elect Donald Trump? Uh, well, I think that, is a, it's a, that sentiment is a concern, clearly. Uh, we've not met with any Democrats as yet today. I, I believe that's, that's, that they're on the menu for tomorrow. But, um, you know, again, that, that, that it would be disappointing were that the case because that would, again, speak to the political basis of this prosecution. And it would mitigate against uh, there being any... Um, truly, you know, true concern for justice under, underpinning the prosecution. Just in closing then, do you think that whatever sentence the United States wants to hand down, could Assange serve that sentence in Australia or would he just be simply set free? I, 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 we feel very strongly as a delegation that Mr Assange should not be extradited to the US, that that would be the, the worst possible outcome. And, and we think that this situation should be resolved uh, in the very short term uh, and without without him standing trial in the United States. Well, Dr. Monique Ryan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Anna. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Monique Ryan, who's a former director of neurology at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, who currently serves as an independent member of parliament in Australia, representing the federal district of Kuyong in Melbourne. She's a part of a team of six Australian members of parliament who are visiting Washington, D.C. this week to meet with members of Congress, the White House and the State Department to discuss the U.S. dropping charges against Julian Assange under the Espionage Act. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to how to reverse the encroachment of kleptocracies and autocracies threatening democracies and the rule of law and how to undo the trade trap we built, which has weakened the West and empowered its enemies. Yeah. I see my light cook shining From the West down to the east 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matthias Doffner, who is the CEO of Axel Springer, one of the world's largest media companies, which owns the U.S. media brands Politico, Insider, and Morning Brew, and is Europe's largest digital publisher, active in over 40 different countries. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators, and he has an op-ed at the Wall Street Journal, What the West Loses by Trading with Dictatorships. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthias Doffner. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And your book starts out as a kind of love letter to democracy. And it's pretty clear that democracy is under attack both at home and abroad, and that there's no longer an ideological struggle, but the world is riven between frail democracies and the rule of law being under attack from the encroachment of kleptocracies and autocracies. So before we get into the solutions that you offer, let's talk about how the West has dug the hole deeper in terms of the trade trap. In effect, we've built our own trade trap that has disadvantaged the West and advantaged autocracies and kleptocracies. Well, we have the obvious uh, threats of democracy, and uh, that is mainly the behavior of uh, dictators and autocrats. We have the kind of hidden dangers of centrist democracies uh, by weak centrist leadership that is kind of disappointing more and more its uh, electorate and so and then there is the third threat and that is a irresponsible and short-sighted trade policy uh, between democracies help to liberalize to open these autocratic societies according to this old idea of change through trade. But we have to acknowledge that pretty much the opposite happened because through these trade relationships, uh, autocracies and dictatorships have been strengthened. And one very obvious example is the Russian war in Ukraine. This war could only be entertained in that manner because Europe, and in particular Germany, has strengthened the Russian economy and Putin by creating an unnecessary dependency on Russian energy. When Angela Merkel took office, Germany consumed 33% of its gas from Russia. When she left office, it was north of 60%. After the dropout of nuclear energy in 2011, the German economy created dependency from Russia. The project of Nord Stream 2 was a good example that against all warnings from the US, Germany pursued that strategy that has funded Putin. The EU was basically transferring more than a billion euro per day to Russia, and that has, in a way, created that Putin that we have to deal with now. I think that is a very obvious example uh, how dangerous uh, this kind of irresponsible trade policy can be. China will be the next chapter. And in general, I think we have to acknowledge that this idea of Milton Friedman, that the purpose of business is business, is just untrue. Business has never been as political as these days. So change through trade or Wandel der Handel, I always thought that that was largely to do with the Social Democrats and Schroeder. But in your book, you talk about you as a young reporter on Germany's equivalent of Air Force One uh, with Chancellor Kohl heading to trade talks in China and that he brought up Wandel der Handel in terms of, uh, of uh, China. So to what extent have we been taken in, in or at least corporate America and, and Western investors, in building the Chinese economy only to find them basically stealing intellectual property and now shutting out the markets, which were the great lure of Western investors. And now you even see Apple now realizing that they may have to diversify and, and not be dependent on manufacturing in China. They have just shifted 7% of iPhone manufacturing to, to India. That's right. Yeah, I heard the term change through trade, Wandel durch Handel, indeed for the first time from Helmut Kohl on that trip to China in 1995, where all top German business leaders joined and tried to shape deals. And there was this euphoria that, of course, China is an incredibly attractive growth market. And at the same time, trade with China will do good also politically. 
we now know that was naive. But it is not only a German phenomenon and has not only created in Germany dependency, particularly with regard to the German car industry, which is very, very dependent on the sales in China, which are more than 40 percent of VW sales, for example. But also in America, if you take the antibiotics, uh, more than 90 percent of the antibiotics sold in America are based on components that are exclusively produced uh, in China. So there are many examples and also big Chinese corporations and more importantly, Chinese investors benefited for decades from the Chinese growth opportunities. A very kind of famous example is uh, BlackRock. And I think we now are at a point, it may have been a very kind of logical and reasonable move to do that decades ago. But given the asymmetry that we have seen in dealing with China, amplified by the WTO, which uh, sees China still as a developing country and granted for that reason uh, exceptions and uh, privileges uh, that have led to the fact that the Chinese contribution to world GDP went up uh, since its full membership to the WTO from roughly 4% to more than 18%, while the GDP contribution of the United States went down from 32% to 24%. So the winner is clear um, here. Um, I think we now have to simply acknowledge this model doesn't work any longer. China is more authoritarian than ever. The rise of the Chinese economy has not led to a more open and freedom-oriented society. Xi is creating an even more authoritarian and intolerant policy and a total surveillance system. So that policy has failed. We have to come up with new ideas. And that's why I wrote that book. And that's why I want to stimulate a discussion about a new trade policy. How much do you think it's to do with, with Xi Jinping being a departure from his predecessor, starting with Deng Xiaoping and Zhang Jian and others who had a consensus form of government and certainly seem to be more friendly to the West and want to integrate the economies? Now you've clearly got a departure with him. So is it, did the change happen on the Chinese side or was that always the hidden agenda? I think it is always this. I don't know. Uh, it is always the risk if you deal with uh, autocrats or dictators that you may make the naive mistake to predict their actions according to the to your own ethical and cultural standards, which would mean, for example, if you uh, give something, you get something in return. Or uh, if you offer a compromise, you basically stimulate the other side to also offer a compromise. That is not true if you deal with authoritarian players. They see every sign of uh, weakness as an encouragement to do more and go further. That has been true with Putin and its actions in Georgia in 2008, its uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the start of the war in 2021. And it is also true with regard to China. The more powerful China got economically, the more they simply could um, define their terms, and their terms are authoritarian terms. Whether it, this is just a personality question and Deng Xiaoping was a true believer in opening the Chinese economy and society towards the West. And she is a kind of um, a different personality who had always the, the plan to make China more homogeneous, more authoritarian and um, in a way even anti-Western. I don't know. I just can uh, see and analyze the facts. And the facts are that the China of today is way more authoritarian than the China of 95 when this euphoria about change through trade started. And indeed, Germany's foreign minister from the Green Party, Xi Jinping, is upset with her for referring to him as a dictator. But she just stated the obvious. She just stated the obvious. And uh, you see how the reaction is. The re reaction is self-confident, bold, aggressive, uh, if not threaten threatening. And uh, that's why we should also not underestimate China's potential actions with regard to Taiwan. It's the same like uh, Putin and Ukraine. People said, Germans said, Europeans said, he's never going to do it. They said it two weeks before the invasion happened. And only the Americans were realistic to say, of course, he is doing it because uh, that's uh, his agenda. Uh, the same is true in, in China and Taiwan. I have, uh, haven't talked to any Chinese over the last uh, years who said uh, China is never going to uh, take uh, Taiwan. It's only a question when. 
is it happening in 10 years or is it happening in four years or is it happening next year? This is the discussion. And it will very much depend also if uh, the West is encouraging China to do so by being passive, by being not successful in this kind of uh, symbolic war in Ukraine. I think that is a very important factor. So I think we need a policy of strength and of self-confidence, but also a policy that defends our self-interests with regard to economy, with regard to climate policy. And I think that can only be achieved through a new democratic trade alliance based on clear criteria. So talk about the mechanism that you've come up with here in terms of uh, getting out of the trade trap. In other words... The central thesis, which I can briefly describe here as the establishment of a new values-based trade alliance for democracies. Membership in the Freedom Trade Alliance is based on the adherence of very three simple criteria, the rule of law, human rights, and sustainability targets. Countries that comply with these criteria can engage in tariff-free trade with each other. Those that don't will have to pay prohibitive tariffs. Now, to what extent is that a, an improvement on uh, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that also didn't happen? Yeah, um, I think the fact that things didn't happen or haven't been executed in a successful manner should not mean that we should give up uh, on the direction of the ideas in general. This idea is very bold. You could say um, it is uh, based on incentives, not on prohibitions, which I think is very important. It's not about, I mean, we have the discussion at the moment in the EU, should we impose new higher tariffs for Chinese uh, electric cars? Nice discussion, but a very reactive one and a very granular one. I think we need a bigger concept. We need a, a design that has a positive impact on many levels. And that's why I came up with that proposal it is a, an idea. It's not a recipe. There are a lot of open questions and details that have to be discussed and have to be decided. But the general logic is that if these open society economies really stick together and based on that principle of tariff-free trade, stimulate their economies, like with a very good and bold tax reform, to create more uh, uh, growth, to create more value uh, creation, and um, to create more jobs, then I think that will strengthen these democratic economies. And at the same time, it is an invitation to those who are either on the edge or are on the more autocratic side to really make a decision whether giving up a bit of autocracy or allowing more freedom to their societies and people will bring them a lot more prosperity or whether they rather stick to the old model to oppress, oppress their people and um, keep closed um, systems with all the downsides for autocratic countries. So I think it is really a move that tries to defend and strengthen the economies of democracies that still have the upper hand because they represent roughly 70% of world GDP. This number is going down. So if we continue on that path that we are on right now, we will be in a few years below uh, 60%, below 50%. And then I think the pressure from autocratic systems will get higher and the influence also on our political systems will be very concrete. We have seen a lot of warnings on the wall that economic dominance will not stop with dollars and money. It will also interfere into politics and into uh, social systems. Uh, so I think it is late, but not too late. And we should definitely try something new. And I'm convinced that the logic of such a real free trade alliance that is less bureaucratic than the dysfunctional WTO is closer to the idea of the old gut, so less is more, but the few things that are really defined are very concrete and are very binding, that I think this model could help to defend and strengthen democracy. And in terms of the political likelihood, I mean, of course, we have this ridiculous situation now with the House Republicans possibly shutting down the U.S. government at the end of the month, within a, what, a week or so. And on the one hand, they're very hawkish on China, but at the same time, 
the Republicans are becoming very dovish on supplying aid to Ukraine, and it's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? If you basically hand Ukraine over to Russia, isn't that going to embolden China to be more aggressive on Taiwan? A hundred percent. I think these things are directly linked. You could even say that the you, that the Russian war in Ukraine is a proxy war, and China will very carefully watch what the West, what the U.S., what their allies, what NATO does, and uh, whether Putin is getting away with it. If Putin gets away with that, Taiwan is the next chapter, hundred percent. And it is so interesting, naive and short-sighted that uh, some people think, well, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, we don't care, uh, America first. Uh, and in the case of China, yeah, here we have to be bold. Uh, sorry, these things are completely intertwined. And uh, that brings us to this very fundamental question, whether America really thinks that uh, it can uh, pursue a route towards more isolationism. And that is also true in the context of this discussion of decoupling from China. I think it is just a mistake to think that a unilateral decoupling from the U.S., from China, is going to solve the problem of Chinese dominance. It is not going to achieve that goal, but it is weakening at the same time the American economy. If the U.S. would reestablish also on a trade level a true transatlantic alliance of values and interests together with Europe. I know Europe is sometimes a difficult partner. I know how disappointed sometimes uh, American politicians are from their European peers. But there is a bigger interest. There is a bigger conceptual goal. And that is the reestablishment of a transatlantic alliance as the basis also as a basis not only for a security alliance, NATO, but also as a trade alliance in order to strengthen our economies. And here, the U.S. and EU will only be the starting point, only be the basis, but a necessary basis, a necessary critical mass. And if that critical mass is given, other economies will follow. Of course, immediately Canada, uh, Australia, Japan is very important, but then also African countries that are not completely dependent on China, Latin American countries, Asian countries, India as perhaps the most important player being on the edge right now, but still it is kind of winnable. So I really think if we see it in the grander scheme of things, it is way more reasonable and very much more in the interest of the United States and its people to reach out to a partner and to really establish an alliance and to do things together than going uh, further down an isolationist path. But in terms of the Ukraine war, where there's the, the so-called Zeitenwende, the, the turning point underway, pretty slow to, to begin with, and the same criticism basically could be leveled at the United States. We talk a good game, uh, but we, you know, we set our own red lines. Oh, you can't have these these missiles. You can't have these tanks. You can't have these aircraft. And months go by, giving the Russians time to prepare defenses, which now the Ukrainians are having a hard time penetrating. I don't understand what's going on with the Biden administration. Some people say that Jake Sullivan is being overcautious. What explains this timidity in terms of going all in to help Ukraine? If we understand exactly what Biden and Zelensky said yesterday at the UN, that this is the test for the for the world. This is a, a case of, right. of, of the, the, the basic uh, principles of the United Nations uh, at stake here. I don't understand so, why we've been dribbling stuff in there in terms of weapons and support. I'm not a political advisor, and particularly as a foreigner, as a German, I don't want to give uh, kind of uh, lectures to, to American policymakers. Uh, that is really beyond my competence. But as a citizen, and uh, based on common sense, I just uh, don't get it why one would stop uh, or hesitate halfway. Uh, I think we have made a decision, and fortunately the American administration has made a decision that this is a war about freedom and democracy, that is a war, uh, perhaps a proxy war for bigger conflicts, that it is a war that the United States, that Europe, that NATO uh, 
uh, have to stop uh, and with that you could say indirectly to win. That is a decision that has been made, I think, in America and in Europe. And now we have to double up. We cannot stop uh, halfway and in between. Uh, that would be catastrophic. And uh, that's why I truly think very decisive months are ahead of us. And uh, we have to do everything in order to make sure that freedom and democracy prevails and that Putin doesn't get away with that. Uh, in the end, that means, I think, regime change to think that we can come to terms with uh, the existing president um, is not very realistic. Um, and that's why I think it is a very, very fundamental conflict that has to be decided in the favor of democracy. So just in closing then, Matthias Duffner, your new book, The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators, starts out with your meeting in 2005 with Vladimir Putin. And when you sat down with him finally after <laughs> waiting, <laughs> which is uh, one of his ploys, at least he didn't sick a big dog on you like he did with uh, <laughs> Angela Merkel. Um, with Angela who, Merkel, yeah. Yeah, she's afraid of dogs. <laughs> but... What I don't understand, I've talked to all of the top uh, U.S. Uh, specialists on the National Security Council and State Department and CIA on, on Russia and the Soviet Union over the years, and I've never understood why, you know, gangsters yearn for respectability. And I don't understand why we, we, we've given him respectability because in the end of the 1990s, he blew up these apartment buildings and killed over 300 of his own people in order to, to pr prosecute a, a second war against the Chechens. So when you sat down with him, did you f sense in any way that you were setting, sitting down with a killer or a statesman? Well, of course, the Putin of 2005 was a different Putin, and he was still perceived as a leader who is step-by-step step modernizing Russia and, and uh, is heading towards democracy. But you could already then feel a aggression and an inferiority complex uh, of a representative of a former superpower who wanted to reestablish a bigger and stronger Russia, either based on the Soviet Union model or based on a Peter, Peter the Great idea. However, you could really feel that. And he said explicitly, you know, we may have common interests with our European and American partners, but we cannot be treated by them like a colony. We have our own pride. Our culture is older and so on and so on. And you could really see and feel there is something happening that is uh, dangerous. Uh, it was a frightening feeling that I was left with. And that's why I framed my book with this chapter about Putin meeting a strong man. And by the way, I'm convinced that strong men are only strong as long as they are perceived by their country, by their people as being strong. And as soon as a strong man gets weak, he will lose power. And I think that is what has to happen in Russia. Uh, and at the end of the book, I have this encounter with Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, uh, who is pretty much the opposite of Putin. That is the, some people say, the kind of idealistic and perhaps um, weak Western centrist leader. But what I found interesting talking to Annalena Baerbock about this war, although she comes from a party that is based on the idea of pacifism, she was surprisingly bold and she had a degree of courage that I found uh, fascinating. Perhaps that is uh, also a new generation of politicians, but there is a centrist courage to simply say uh, we cannot allow that autocrats get away with that. And that's why we have to be bold. We have to deliver more weapons. We have to double up in order to win that conflict. Well, just in closing, of course, you know, you're describing Putin even in 2005 as being consumed by the politics of grievance. And that's exactly the campaign that Donald Trump is running, the politics of grievance and uh, the idea of Trump coming back, and which I think is Putin's best play, isn't it? The, the, to get out of the, the war in Ukraine would be for Trump to be, be re-elected here in the United States, pull out of NATO, and that would be the greatest gift to Putin. A bad deal, a cheap deal with Putin would be a turning point in 
the kind of perspective and prospects of the free West and the open society model, I think that would have a very, very fundamental negative effect. And nobody knows what's going to happen. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, uh, Matthias Dovner. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Matthias Dovner, who is the CEO of Axel Springer, one of the world's largest media companies, which owns the U.S. media brands Politico, Insider, and Morning Brew, and is Europe's largest digital publisher, active in over 40 different countries. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators, and he has an op-ed at the Wall Street Journal, What the West Loses by Trading with Dictatorships. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an update on the increasingly tense situation between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Huri Berberian, who is Professor of History and the Magruni Family Presidential Chair in Armenian Studies and Director of the Armenian Studies Program at the University of California, Irvine. She's the author of Armenians and the Iranian Constitutional Revolution of 1905 to 1911, The Love of Freedom Has No Fatherland, and Roving Revolutionaries. Armenians and the Connected Revolutions in the Russian, Iranian, and Ottoman Worlds. Welcome to Background Briefing, Huri Berberian. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Huri. And um, I've been trying to follow what's happening in between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and particularly over the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh for some months now. And it, it strikes me as a potential flashpoint for a full-scale war. There have already been two wars uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the last one of which the Azeris made some gains with a, a lot of military support from Turkey. Russia supposedly has a 2,000-man peacekeeping force there, uh, supposedly keeping the corridor open to the enclave of 120,000 Armenians who are essentially being starved inside the enclave. And now we're learning that there's a peace deal that was brokered by the Russians where there may be some relief for the Armenians trapped inside Nagorno-Karabakh, but in exchange for which the area gets demilitarized. And I th- assume that this will be very unpopular in Armenia and it may put more pressure on the reformist prime minister. So... What do you make of these new peace proposals? Um, well, it, it does end uh, the, the conflict for the time being. Uh, but as we have seen in the past, uh, it doesn't mean a final solution to this problem, uh, which uh, has been going on for quite a long time. The relief that's been brought to the Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh is basically... Uh, the fact that they will no longer be bombed as they have been uh, for the past day. Uh, but what that means in terms of opening up the Lachin Corridor, it's unclear to me as of yet. And definitely this will be unpopular among certain segments of the, uh, the Armenian population. But there are also those among the Armenian population who are exhausted uh, by this conflict and uh, who might actually be somewhat, if resentful is not the word, uh, something similar about being dragged into this conflict because now it is, it has, for the past uh, two years, it has been the Armenian Republic uh, which has come to the aid of Garapal uh, in addition to the forces uh, there, the indigenous forces, but also uh, it is Armenia that has, that is being dragged in and facing uh, all kinds of other problems, including a risk, a threat to the democracy that uh, Pashinyan had run with uh, in 2018. And there were protests uh, just recently in the, in the capital, in Yerevan, uh, that were 
uh, met with uh, riot police and many uh, dozens actually were injured. So it doesn't look good uh, yet. Well, of course, the new prime minister, uh, Nikol Parashinyan, he rose to power with massive street demonstrations against mm-hmm. the kind of pro-Russian, going back through the Soviet times kind of mafia group that finally got removed. And it's yeah. pretty clear, isn't it, Dahuri, that Putin is much more comfortable with Azerbaijan's hereditary despot, mm-hmm. Aliyev, who's got a lot of oil and you know is a kind of fellow gangster like Putin, than he is with this upstart yes. Democrat who mm-hmm. had Armenia join, he signed the Rome Statutes to join the International Criminal Court at a time where the ICC wants to extradite Putin. So mm-hmm. that's obviously yes. angered Putin, and the peace creepers are not doing their job up until now. And I don't know whether, is the corridor open? Uh, well, it opened for humanitarian uh, aid after over eight months of the blockade. Uh, and the two, I, both uh, the Lachin Corridor to Armenia and also, also Ardam to, Azer, the, uh, to Azerbaijan were opened. Some Red Cross, um, International Red Cross humanitarian aid went in. And then uh, there was the uh, offensive. There was the attack. Uh, uh, and the military attack on the uh, population. So, uh, you know, I, the message is uh, very mixed. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Putin is much more comfortable with Aliyev, as is Erdogan. Uh, they don't necessarily, uh, actually, they don't at all like uh, Pashinyan's uh, uh, style uh, or his democratic ideologies or his reforms and so forth. That's very clear. And Armenia can no longer, and quite frankly, has never been able to count on Russia. Uh, and now it's turning towards the U.S. Uh, and um, I don't believe that it can count on the U.S. either. The Lachin Corridor blockade for over eight months is a very good example uh, of that. Uh, and when Azerbaijan did attack uh, a couple of days uh, yesterday, um, no one came uh, to uh, the aid of Ghanapa or the Armenians in Ghanapa. So, I'm, yeah, it is not a good situation, to so, say lightly. So the military exercises that took place starting last Monday, mm-hmm. there were 85 U.S. soldiers involved, which is not very many, obviously. Is right. there a possibility of Armenia switching sides, no longer having a defense agreement with Russia and then turning to the West? Can the West and the U.S. in particular step in quickly enough to defend I, uh, Armenia if needed? I don't think that there is the willpower in the U.S. to do that, um, especially after the amount of aid that has gone uh, into Ukraine. Uh, but Armenia is not Ukraine. Armenia is a very small country that uh, perhaps the U.S. feels has nothing to offer. Uh, and um, I'm not sure that Armenia turning to the U.S. is actually uh, beneficial uh, to it. It lives in, an, in, the na- in Russia's neighborhood. Uh, and if it cannot count on the U.S. or the West to come to its aid, I don't see the point of turning to the U.S. I mean, this is basically uh, realpolitik. It's not an ideological issue or it's not uh, anything of that kind. Um, The fact that Armenia is a democracy uh, now and has been since 2018 has not actually benefited uh, in any way in terms of getting the U.S. to step in when uh, when Armenia most needed it or when Gharapa most needed it. So... What do you think, is, as I say, I've been following this for some time because it seems to be an underreported but potentially serious situation. Do you think that the steps underway now and the further steps that are supposed to be taken in this uh, peace deal will, in fact, end this confrontation? Or, as I, we were saying earlier, Putin doesn't like democracy anywhere, particularly on his doorstep. Right. Aliyev is a, is a fellow crook and he's he's mm-hmm. working with another crook in uh, Turkey who's laundering all of the oil, the, both Russian mm-hmm. and Azeri oil, to the international market. So you, they're all making out like bandits. Yes. Um, 
I don't I I think it's an end to this stage of the conflict, but I don't necessarily think it's an end to the conflict because now what happens to the 120,000 Armenians in Harapal? Should we trust Aliyev uh, when he says everything will be fine, they will be treated fairly, e- equally, and, and so forth. I mean, the whole reason why the Gharapal Armenians uh, wanted to secede from Azerbaijan was because of discrimination and persecution and so forth. So I don't necessarily think, unfortunately, that this is the end uh, to the conflict. I, I think it's the end of this phase of the conflict, and I'm curious to see uh, what the next phase will be. Um, and what our uh, Armenians in Ar- Armenia will do. Uh, I don't know if these protests will grow, uh, whether there um, other more political uh, upheavals will take place that perhaps might shake up the uh, governing uh, party there, Pashinyan and so forth, and what that could possibly mean uh, for uh, regional peace. But he's getting pressure from both sides, right? From Russia, Azerbaijan, and from his own hawks on Turkey, but also his own hawks, right? They think he's he's not being strong enough. But the the last time around, Armenia got badly beaten because of Turkish help, right? So this time around, I mean, it's better not to fight than fight, and and isn't it? Because they're not ready, are they? Yes, and absolutely, no, they are not, and. and they may never be because of the the oil money that uh, Aliyev uh, has and the military that he has built up. Uh, and Armenia did not send uh, any troops uh, this time around, did not fight the Azeris and uh, held back uh, because it knows very well that um, it has nothing in a sense to gain. I mean, in terms of, you know, justice, ideology and so forth, democracy and and coming to the aid of people who want to self-determination, yes, absolutely, these are all good things. But in terms of real politics on the ground, I, you know, Armenia doesn't have anything to gain uh, by going in uh, against Azerbaijan again. Uh, it lost in 2020, uh, and uh, things have gotten even worse, uh, and would lose even worse if it did actually put up uh, a military offensive or defense against uh, Azerbaijan. Well, Huri Berberian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Huri Berberian, Professor of History and the Bagruni Family Presidential Chair in Armenian Studies and Director of the Armenian Studies Program at the University of California, Irvine. She's the author of Armenians and the Iranian Constitutional Revolution of 1905 to 1911, The Love for Freedom Has No Fatherland, and Roving Revolutionaries, Armenians and the Connected Revolutions in the Russian, Iranian, and Ottoman Worlds. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared